Some of you may be more familiar with this section than others. There's been a lot of ink spilled, in particular, on this prophecy from verses 24 to 27. So much so that, in my estimation, it will take you 70 weeks to read all that you could, just that's been written about this in the last five years, let alone you'd need 490 years to read everything in church history speculating on what exactly is happening between verses 24 to 27. I say that not by way to uh, warn you in a way to, to warn you off of this, uh, because the last thing I want to do is, is the, the, you know, there's always um, the extremes we can go to. Uh, the one extreme when we get to prophetic, not pathetic, but prophetic texts like this on one side, uh, the, the guy already has his charts in his seat right now, and he is going to get me on every jot and tittle of what I get wrong about the exact day all this goes down. Now, the remedy for that is not then to swing to the other extreme and become indifferent, and in some ways to become a mocker and say, you know what? We don't really need to know the details of the 70 weeks and who this Messiah Prince is and is he different from the Prince in verse 27 and what, what do we even do with a word like abomination of desolation? The, the key to any kind of exploration of the word of God is never to go from one extreme to the next, but it is to bring all thoughts captive to Christ. To, to look at this text and say, there is something that is in here that is truthful, as we talked about in 2 Timothy 3 a few weeks ago, that should produce in me just a greater love for God. And I do believe there is something that could be useful in these 70 weeks. Not so that I can tell you, guys, here's the date, I figured it out, give me your money, and we're gonna all go in on this thing together because God's gonna take us up, you know, whenever the Panthers finally win the Super Bowl. You know, that I'm not here to hoodwink anyone. But I am here to build us up and encourage us in getting to see what Daniel saw, what God wanted him to know. And I think that's really what hit me looking at this passage this week, is this is a personal answer from a personal God to someone that he loved and wanted individually to reach. Clearly, Daniel wasn't the only man of faith on planet Earth in 538 BC. But you know what? We don't have anybody else to read about. So it can feel like all, everything was just, must have been in God's wisdom and revelation just zoned it. No. How many people of faith were in exile with Daniel praying at this exact moment? How many people were left behind uh, to, to, to live back in the land? Who knows where all God's people were scattered? And I bring that to our attention to say, the same is true today, friend. The, the God of heaven hears you and sees you in your individual crises. He hears you and sees you in whatever you are facing today and what you are fearful of tomorrow. Even though, as we can see in this text today, that there is a lot going on in the heavens. There, all that he is doing to move forward his plan of salvation until its appointed end, way more than we could handle or imagine all of us put together times a billion. 
all the contingencies that his sovereignty directs. And yet he sees Daniel and he sees you and he hears from you and wants to know what's on your heart. I hope moves you today as much as whatever eschatology comes out of this doesn't cause you to literally move on planet earth to wherever the next kook comes along and says, I've I've figured it out. I got my charts. This is where it's going to go down. That's, that's not the point of this either. The point is that Christ would be exalted and lifted up in our hearts today. And I pray that he shows us that in three ways. That, that God, the God of heaven who, who sees and controls sovereignly all of history, sees and controls your individual life. Because he sees your heart that no one else can see. And he sees your deepest need that maybe no one else even knows. And he sees your individual future down to the second. Clearly, nobody else is in on that. So when we talk about him seeing your heart and your need and your future, I hope you are built up and strengthened today by way of what Daniel has to show us. So let's start with God sees Daniel's heart and most certainly he sees our heart. Verses 22, or 20 to 23. Daniel, we last left off, was on his knees in prayer, praying for the restoration of Israel who had been taken away eh, almost 70 years prior to this. He has been in Babylon since 605. At the time, this is going down because he dates it in, in chapter 9, verse 1, when and Darius uh, takes the throne. So we're talking 539, 538. So that's 70 years, if we're counting from 605, is almost up. And of all times, God sovereignly directs Daniel to come across Jeremiah 25 and 29, about the 70 years, in these final years which just made me stop and appreciate God's goodness to Daniel in that. What if Daniel would have been reading about that in, say, year five? Maybe that would have been overwhelming for him to think. I'm going to be here this much longer? It could have been too much for him to bear about his future and the future of Israel. But yet God waits and waits, and then he, he's in his devotions at the beginning of Daniel chapter 9, and he reads in the book of Jeremiah about the completion of the desolation, a word for meaning abandonment, destruction, which happened when, well, finally went down when Jerusalem was destroyed in 586, but Daniel would have come in 605. So here he is praying for God's people, including himself in confession of sin, and he just ends by saying, oh Lord, don't delay Um, We're pretty close to that number, 70. But act for your city and your people and your name. This is about your glory, not mine. That's where his prayer ends. Now he says, I'm speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. Notice what he adds in there that we didn't see prior. He says, confessing my sin. So even though all of that confession last week was us and we and our language, he was saying, that's my sin too. So I'm confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and I was presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. And while I was still speaking in prayer, deep in prayer, then in the middle of this, Gabriel, who we met 
A couple weeks ago in chapter 8, verse 16 through 19, uh, we said his name means the warrior of God, and he's mentioned in Luke chapter 1 and in chapter 2 visiting uh, Zacharias and then visiting Mary, and we joked about You know, he has to tell these people he visits, don't be afraid because otherwise they die of fear. You know, Daniel in chapter eight, you know, fainted, it seems like, and he needed comforted. But clearly on this return visit, Daniel was like, oh, I know that guy, Gabriel, warrior of God. And he comes in this time of prayer in the extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering, and he gives instruction to talk with Daniel And told him, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. Because at the beginning of your supplications, and note this detail. At the beginning of your supplications, the command, so Gabriel isn't some maverick angel just doing whatever he wants to do up in heaven. He is following the command issued from God. He's God's special messenger. In fact, when he came to Zacharias in Luke 1.19, he says, I am the angel who stands in the presence of God. Now, I know there's a lot of angels going, doing things up there, but it seems that he's highlighted as he's right there in the presence of God before the face of God, getting the special, I mean, think of the things he, Dan, or Gabriel's getting to do here. He, he's coming to give a prophecy of the coming Messiah. What did he come to tell Zacharias? The, the one who was going to come before the Messiah, John the Baptist. Then he comes to tell Mary, you're going to have the Messiah. You think he gets special I'm watching Mr. Rogers with my kids, so special delivery, like, I got to get that out of my brain. Mr. McFeely, he is not Mr. McFeely. He is the warrior angel, the warrior of God, who comes, and it seems when he shows up in the Bible, these are pretty big messages to tell. Note, Daniel is praying, and I think with stood out to me just in, in, in the devotion of Daniel to, to praise God for and then and ask ourselves a question about is how Daniel remembers when this happens. He came to me, now my version says my extreme weariness. It could be in your version it says he came swift in flight. So it could it translate it either way that, that Gabriel was hustling to get there. Why? Because he came at the beginning of Daniel's supplications, verse 23. Um, I don't know how fast an angel can fly from heaven, but if Daniel's supplication started in verse 15, see how long it takes you to read from verse 15 to 19. That's how fast Gabriel got the message and got there. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we don't know much about angels in, in all of it, but we do know when they gotta get here fast, they can. That, that's how quickly he turned this around. But when he came to talk to Daniel that was on Daniel's mind, look at the end of verse 21. He came about the time of the evening offering. Well, what's so important about that? Well, it just made me stop and say, why would Daniel date the time of Gabriel's arrival by the evening offering that is, is mentioned in the book of Leviticus um, sorry, Exodus in 29.39, you could read it later, but that the offering for Israel from the high priest was meant to be offered in the morning and the evening. So think about that. He's been in Babylon for 68 years. When's the last time he saw that evening offering? When's the last time he would have been near the temple? Something that happened in his childhood. I mean, he came over probably around his teenage years, 605, he's 15. He hasn't seen the evening offering and smelled the evening offering and he has not been around anybody going to it for 68 years potentially. And it's still lodged in his spiritual memory bank. 
Maybe that's a good word for us about the importance of godly habits developed young. Where are you at, older Christian, today without the habits that you developed as a young believer? I mean, just, just think back. What, what are the, some of the things that build your faith up the most? You think about the things that happened that God was doing in your life when you were, when you were a child. The, the first testimony today of the young lady was that she, she was remembering laying in bed at night a lesson in, in her Sunday school class when she was eight. Young person, it's not a small thing for us to say, build the habit of daily Bible reading and prayer and coming to church and, 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 and making that just a part of who you are. Not to earn anything, but that it's just so wrapped up in who you are and what you do that it won't depart from you when you're 82. Because it didn't depart from Daniel when he was 82. He's still keeping time on God's watch, not Babylon's. How do you keep time? What's going to stick with you from what you invest into your heart in the days of your youth so that who knows what your future holds? What exile you might be in one day when you can't be around the body of Christ and you can't take the Lord's Supper and you don't get the witness of baptism and you can't access preaching. Something's in there that keeps you. So it's not a light thing to develop these habits young. And as you grow old, to hold tight to them. They're not your salvation, but they remind you of the great salvation God gave you. And Daniel is keeping time by something he hasn't seen in six decades. I think that's awesome. I think that's worth emulation. But that's not the best part about this. Why does Gabriel get sent? Um, because, you know, God wants us to take out our charts and, and to know every little last detail of the minute and the date. No, it seems he doesn't want us to know the minute at the hour of the day because Jesus said that. Nobody's going to know that but the Father. So what really is the driving force of Gabriel coming to visit? It's right there in 23. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. And I have come to tell you, purpose statement, for you are highly esteemed. That's why he came. That's why he came. How much did Daniel's broken, humble heart, prayer of confession matter to God, the Father who is upholding all things in the universe in 538 BC and moving all things forward according to his plan? How much did the prayer of one man mean to God? It's right there. You're highly esteemed. That, that word translated is you're, 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 you're deeply Loved, you're greatly treasured. You're not just another one of my children. You have all of my attention. And, and so much so, Daniel, I sent Gabriel to give you a response to your request. God saw Daniel's heart and he sees yours. That's why you don't give up in prayer. You may not get the answers you're waiting for, but he's waiting for you. He wants to commune with you. He wants to hear you cry out to him. And when you cry out, you're not bringing your credentials like, God, it's about time you answer me here. Look at all the things I've done for you. Did Daniel give any credentials? Hey, look how long I've stood for you in Babylon. Look how many times I didn't bow the knee. Look at all the people that I witnessed to. 
No, he says, I'm a sinner like everybody else and I deserve nothing like everybody else and I'm asking you not on account of any of my merit but account of your great compassion. That's the driving force of our prayer life and that's where our expectation comes from. He answers us on the basis of his great compassion and love to us because we're greatly esteemed, we're deeply loved, we're highly treasured, that's why you pray. Do you believe that? Do you believe that much about yourself, child of God? That's where the answer comes from. He loves you that much. He cares for you that much. Now, the question that might be in your mind this morning, well, if he, he, he knows my heart and sees my heart, how come I don't got the answer? And then, maybe the gears are turning and you're reading that going, wait, he sent Gabriel across the universe out of the heavens to meet Daniel within about 15 seconds. I've never gotten an answer to prayer that fast. He must love Daniel more than he loves me. No. It's the wisdom of God that we don't know why sometimes we get a really quick response, so it seems. And other times it's been delayed. How long? Read the Psalms. How long, O oh Lord? How long am I going to cry out? I mean, I believe you hear me, but when's the answer going to come? And maybe a passage like this would initially be discouraging to you because you see God must answer his favorite kids first. You know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. No, that's not how God responds. He responds according to his compassion, yes. He does respond because he loves you and everybody else praying. But in his wisdom, he determines when that answer is going to come. And only his wisdom determines that. I came across this from Charles Spurgeon on this verse highlighting, hey, what, why does Daniel get such a fast response and we don't? And this is what he had to say. And I found it encouraging. I hope you do. Spurgeon said this about God's timing. Thus have true saints continued in patient waiting for months. And there have been instances in which their prayers have even waited for years without reply. Not because they were not fervent, not because they were unaccepted, because it is so pleasing to God who is sovereign and who gives according to his own pleasure. We must not take delays in prayer as denials. God's long-dated bills will be punctually honored. It's awesome. His long-dated bills, that, that, that bill you wrote to God, that IOU that was coming straight from the word of God, not just I expected this, I had some dream or aspiration to be this great thing and God didn't. Well, I don't know, you know, first Adamlonians, you know, where it says I was gonna go on and become this great actor. How come he didn't answer that one? Because first Adamlonians is heresy. He never made that promise to me but he went above and beyond it in his answer. So I guess I could say, man, there's this long delay. You know, where's my, no. I sent him an IOU that he didn't give me the right to write. What are the ones that come from here? Back to Spurgeon's answer. God's long dated bills will be punctually honored. We must not mistake delays for denial. We must not allow Satan to shake our confidence in the God of truth by pointing to our unanswered prayers. Here's why just catch this. We are dealing with a being 
whose years are without end, to whom one day is as a thousand years. Far be it from us to count him slack by measuring his doings by the standard of our little hour. Unanswered petitions are not unheard. God keeps a file for our prayers. They are not blown away by the wind. They are treasured in the king's archives. I hope you can hold on to that. That delay doesn't mean denial. He sees your heart. You are highly esteemed, greatly loved, deeply treasured. And he heard you and he sees your heart. What happens next? Now we get to the first part of his response. God sees Daniel's need and the need of his people that he was making supply for. I mean, Daniel's big question was, help us because of our sins. Verse 16, help us because of our iniquities. Don't reject us because we are a deservingly rejectable people. But take account on your great compassion. So, so God sees in response to Daniel and Israel's deepest need, verse 24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, make an end of sin, make atonement for iniquity. If that's your deepest need, Daniel, if that's the children of God's deepest need, then I'm answering it. I have decreed an amount of time to take care of that. Now notice he, he um, I guess in today's language, he moves the goalposts. Daniel's like, we're almost at the end of 70 years in exile. And then God says, oh, 70 weeks, which literally, and I know sometimes your eyes roll when I say this, but literally means 70 units of seven. Week isn't, a week is a unit of seven, right? Seven days. But in the Hebrew, sometimes that unit of seven means more than seven days. It can mean a unit of seven years. And that's what, it's 70 weeks of seven. So we're talking 490 years, this unit of time. To do what? To meet the deepest need of Daniel and his people. What is that? Let's read it. Well, first off, who's this promise to before we get too much into our own navel gazing? It's right in front of us. It's been decreed for your people. Whose people? Daniel's people. Are Daniel's people my people? Not at this time. I don't see the church in there. I don't see HBC. I see Israel. And your holy city. I don't see Hickory. I see Jerusalem. So who's this promise primarily to? Daniel and the children of Israel. So already some of you who, if you're new here and you're not down with our end time stuff and eschatology, maybe you have some differences and that's okay. But I can't stuff the church into your people in your holy city and make it fit. God has a plan for the church and his plan of salvation. But right here, right now, he's saying there's, there's a period of time and now some people that want to take this and turn it into the church will say in that 70 weeks is just kind of, it's just a, you know, it's a unit of time in God's mind, but we shouldn't take it literally. And I'm okay with some seeing that because you got to play it both ways. There are times units of time are just that. They're in the mind of God, perfectly figured out. He knows every second of every moment of all eternity. So should we take 70 weeks, 70 weeks of seven and turn that into 490 years and use that as a paradigm for all of what we know about the future? Good and godly men do. And good and godly men don't. At our church, we do teach from the side of 490 years for that 70 weeks. 
your people and your city means Daniel and Jerusalem. What's going to happen at the end of this time? The transgression will be finished. Sin will be brought an end to. Atonement for iniquity. Man's deepest need right there, right? I don't think there should be any. If, you're gonna, let's, let's, if we can disagree on timing, let's all agree on this is our deepest need. Whether we're talking about Israel in 538 BC or Hickory in 2023, our deepest need is what? Sin being removed. So that's what he's going to do. Finish the transgression. Make an end of sin. How do you do that? You make atonement for iniquity. This sounds like the gospel. And it is. Now that's one side of it. But look what's on the back end of this promise in verse 24. Not only is it removing the sin part, it's bringing in the righteousness part. What, what is this, what's going to happen in response to Daniel's prayer over the course of 490 years that can finish sin and then bring in righteousness? Also seal up vision and prophecy as in uh, bring to an end the need uh, for us to have vision and prophecy brought to us where you could say it's complete. There's, no, there's nothing new for us to know. We will have perfect understanding of who God is and what he's like to seal up vision and prophecy and to have an anointing, a setting apart of a most holy place that still has never come to its fulfillment. So on one end, you have removal of sin. On the other side of it, you have all the blessings and promises. Get this. Everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, anointing the most holy place. This is going all the way back to the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12 uh, of a people in a place and a blessing forevermore. But it hasn't come to true fulfillment yet. So in Daniel's time, he could be slightly discouraged that it's like he was, he was thinking, man, we're at the end of the 70 years of exile and I hope we're really ready to go back to Jerusalem and be the people that God designed us to be. And his, God's response is, well, Daniel, is, is the most important thing I bring you back to the promised place or I help you meet the promised one? What's your biggest problem? What's Israel's biggest problem? Sin. So you can go back to Jerusalem and be the same sinful people you've always been. Or I can, I can bring a sin bearer, an atonement maker, a righteousness imputer. Now if I do that, will that solve the dilemma? It absolutely will. So the deepest need for Daniel and his people and for us today, now this is where I will draw the principle out and say, we are no different in our need the people of God in 2023, what do we need? We need our sin removed and we need righteousness and promise and blessing given. We, we don't just get to jump and, and grab all the promises and all the blessings and all that without first recognizing our own need, our need for our sin to be atoned for. If you're an unbeliever here today, before I get into maybe you read the headings of this sermon and you saw, hey, God sees my future and that's really what I'm holding out for right now. Will this guy just get to it? What numbers do I play tomorrow? You know? Here's the, here's the thing. If you don't know Christ today, I can with 100% clear conscience tell you that God sees your heart. He sees your heart perfectly, more perfect than you see it. And the word of God says about your heart, if you have not been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, trusting in him by faith, your heart is wicked and twisted and turned in on itself. I'm not accusing you of being the worst human being that's ever lived. 
You're just like every other human being that's ever lived. You're far from God. Now you're in a church today, but just coming into a church today can't change your sin problem in your heart. God sees your heart. He knows it. I could also promise you today that God sees your need. He he sees that you have a need for forgiveness. And and God sees your future, but this is where there's two paths that are going to divide. If you haven't trusted in Christ today and put your faith in his righteousness on your behalf to meet your deepest need, your sin problem, then, then all of future divides at this point. And it's not haves and have-nots based on pedigree, based on goodness, based on merit. The great divide becomes what do you do with the God who sees your deepest need, who sees your sinful heart and says, I've got a solution for it. It's my son, Jesus Christ, who came to die to remove sin. To stand in your place for the wrath that God has for you. And to bring you forgiveness and salvation in his name. And there's no way out besides that. That is the only solution. Augustine, early church father, said this, They then who are destined to die need not be careful to inquire what and when in the death they are to die, but into what place death will bring them. And so I offer you today salvation in Christ alone. That he sees your heart and he sees your need and he has the offering of a gift of salvation in his son Jesus for that need. Will you receive it? Will you trust in him today? And when you do, then you can be sure that what he sees about your future does not include punishment, does not include wrath, but only offers you all the promises that are offered to the child of God in the scriptures, everlasting life with him. So let's move into talking about the future that God sees in our lives. Verses 25 to 27, first let's talk about the future that he was going to tell Daniel about before we talk about ours. So, verse 25, Gabriel says to Daniel, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And it, referring to Jerusalem, will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So now, we, it's kind of like telescoping. Here's this really broad promise about the future that 70 weeks are going to go by, 490 years, weeks of seven, and there is going to be a decree made. And it's going to be a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the great ruler, the prince, the anointed one comes. And that, however, is not 70 weeks. It's, what does it say halfway through verse 25? Seven plus 62, which is 69. So this promise of sin forgiven and atonement made for, it's actually going to happen just short of the fullness of this period of time of 490 years that God has just said is going to happen. It's going to be a combination of seven weeks, 49 years, plus 62 weeks, 434 years. And now this is where everybody has lots of fun. How do you take these numbers and go into the rest of the Bible, in particular, the minor prophets, the book of Revelation, a little bit of man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians, definitely the Olivet Discourse in Luke, and you shake it all up, you know, and the Yahtzee, 
I got my end times. It feels like that. Um, seven weeks, 49 years, 62 weeks, 434 years. So there was a few decrees in the lifetime of Daniel for Israel to go back. The first one comes from Cyrus, and it comes Cyrus the Anointed in the beginning of the book of Ezra. A second one comes in Nehemiah chapter 2 from Artaxerxes, 445. That one actually got the job done, the restoring and rebuilding of Jerusalem, more than that first decree did. Now I know you're like, here you go, Adam, you're just kind of moving around the dates to accomplish what good and godly scholars of the Bible have put together from uh, that decree in 445 BC of Artaxerxes. If you add up the, the, the years, 483, it can get you to 33 BC, which is what? When Messiah the Prince in the Gospels comes into Jerusalem like an anointed king, but then is, what does it say in verse 26? After that 62 weeks is complete, the Messiah will be cut off. Now that is clear language reflected in Isaiah 53.8. By oppression and judgment, the Messiah was taken away. And, us for, and for us who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. So, we can see at least in verse 25 and 26, this Messiah, the Prince, who is cut off, sounds a lot like Jesus, who was the one who made an end of sin, atonement for iniquity, and is the only one who could bring an everlasting righteousness. The question is, when you don't have all the other dates about when these decrees were made and you line them up over top of Revelation 13 and the beast and the abomination of desolation, you can come out with that date in 33 B.C if I did all the math for you on a chart. But I don't think that's really what God was trying to get across to Daniel. I, I think the detail of the numbers, and I'm, I'm all for it. I, there, if you want to Google this and read before the Super Bowl today, you got a couple hours to kill, you know, while all the food's being made. Uh, Sir Robert Anderson, the coming prince. And this Bible scholar in the 1800s, just he took this one section and he got to work on charts and dates and numbers. He calculated in that in the years we're talking about, years were 360 days, not 365, until Egyptian calendars turned in 445 BC to the Julian calendar. Now you do also have to account for leap years because you know all the leap year babies are always like, what about where do we get our cut? How come we're always passed over? So this guy calculated in leap years in those 483 years. He also calculated in the difference between lunar and solar calendars where 11 days can be off and... He said that there were, from the issuing of the decree in March of 4th, I forget my numbers now, 445, to the time in, believed by scholars in April of 33 AD, 173,880 days. Down to the day. I didn't come in here to exegete that guy. I'm here to exegete this text, but I'm saying you can get there and then you're left with the 70th week because the 70th week is when everything is finished. What was finished at the cross for sure was what Jesus said he was gonna finish. Atonement for sin, an end of it, 
finishing the transgression, but you can look back to verse 24 and say, was everlasting righteousness brought in at that point for the people of God? It wasn't. Was the most holy place, Jerusalem, anointed and set apart? No, go read the headlines today. They don't even, they're fighting still over the Temple Mount. So clearly, the fulfillment of this prophecy has not happened in Daniel's lifetime, nor up until 2023, which the point of view we teach from at this church is that that 70th week, that last set of seven years, is the tribulation period in Revelation 6 to 19. The end of that time will be what we read in minor prophets like Zechariah 14, if I could find it, because those minor prophets can hide from you. And it talks about the Messiah coming back and his, his feet sitting and putting them down on the Mount of Olives. Here we go, I got the Zechariah and Dwight Stone, beloved older mentor of mine, I think 82, the same age as Daniel. If he knew I was preaching on this passage and didn't read you Zechariah 14, after which he named his son, who watches our children every week here, he'd be upset at me. Here's what's gonna happen at the end of that period of tribulation. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. This is Zechariah 14. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. This doesn't sound like imagery to me, does it? I mean, he's really particular about this language. I don't know if we can just allegorize or spiritualize. Jesus' feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem, On the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountains will flow to the north and half towards the south. That's where it all ends. And then for the church, that's where it all begins because we, the church, fit into this in-between period of time where we don't go through the tribulation. That's the rapture, and that's for another day in another series in Thessalonians. But, But the promises of God that we hold on to are that Jesus will come back and he will rule and reign, and he will set up his kingdom, and everlasting righteousness and anointing of a holy place will begin when Zechariah 14.4 happens. Now that's all pretty awesome. I think there's, there's something to just praise God for the precision of his timing. In, in God's timing and purposes, he is not confused at all like I am right now explaining this and trying to make it clear after a week of studying it where it's still you're trying to put all this together. But what I was convicted by and I hope that we walk away as a church together is that to the degree we get excited about the truthfulness of his first coming, the precision of when the Messiah Prince arrived, we should undoubtedly be more excited and inspired to evangelize by the truth of his second coming. I mean, think about it. However awesome it it is to try to figure out, did all these numbers add up to the precise time of 483 years and 173,880 days that Messiah is, he's, he's cut off from his people and then the city's destroyed, 80, 70, most agree on that. Am I the, the like wonder and amazement that this was all prophesied 100 years in advance, is that exceeded by my belief of all the texts about his return and why that's more important to me? Because salvation's accomplished. It's not to say it's not important. But see, his first coming was for salvation. Yay, salvation. His second coming is for judgment. 
And that's not something I say yay about. Because when he comes in judgment the second time, it's over. His rule and reign begins. So, so what should I be inspired to do in light of a text like this that can blow my mind that God is so precise in the arrival of his son the first time and yes, he has said his son will come back a second time? It should put a burden on my heart to tell people the good news now while it's still good news for them. And to not just be so fired up about our eschatology, our end time theology, that we miss the point of Jesus that we heard a year ago in Mark 13. Stay on the alert. Be ready. Because I am coming at a day and an hour where nobody knows it but the Father. Not all the best Robert Anderson's trying to calculate. Only God knows when his son is coming back and that's why we are to be on the alert today. And we have the best news in the world to give to people today. That to me is, is the most amazing thing about this passage. That I can step back from its precision and say praise God that he knows. And rather than him, you know, Say, oh, you know, I, I should let everybody know what that date and time is because maybe that would motivate them more. No, I don't, th I, I don't think it would do that. That wasn't the message Jesus had in Acts 1, was it, for his disciples? When he's about to leave and they say, verse 6, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? That's kind of a Daniel 9, 24 to 27 question. Can you give us the dates? Is it now? No. What's he say to them? It's not for you to know the times which the Father is fixed by his own authority. What's for you, believer? You'll receive power from the Holy Spirit who comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the remotest part of the earth. That's our marching orders, friends. I had a, a wonderful lunch with a, a, a brother this week who asked such a sincere, heartfelt question about you know, here's my salvation. And I know one day I'll, you know, I'll be glorified. I know one day I'll be perfect, made perfect in Christ. And in, his, in, his, in, in the weightiness of if whatever was going on in his life, he's just being honest saying, but why when I get saved, why wouldn't he just perfect me then? Why wouldn't he just perfect me when I'm saved? What, what, why the struggle now? What, what are we down here for? And I said, well, I can say for sure I know we're down here for what Acts 1.8 says. Otherwise, it'd be rapture, like when you got saved. We don't have to wait for it. If he just wanted us to be glorified and be perfect and sin-free, what would he do when we got saved? Zoop, you're gone. I, well, I wouldn't be preaching to an empty church unless I was actually not a real Christian and didn't know it. But nobody would be here. We'd all be gone the moment we get saved. So I just ran down a list of things with this brother. I said, if, if um, perfect knowledge were the goal of our salvation, when are you going to have it? You, you could study the word of God every second of your day. Are you going to have more perfect knowledge now than when you're in heaven? No, you're going to have it perfectly in heaven. So clearly knowledge can't be the reason we're around. I said, how about perfect love? You could try to, to you know, every passage and verse on love 
and live that out. But are you gonna have more perfect love for God and neighbor here than you will in heaven? The answer is no. So clearly he couldn't have left us here for perfect love. What's, what, what are we here for? What's the thing we can't do there that we can do here? Be his witnesses. Be his witnesses. Because if the point was just perfection and our glorification, then zap us up. But clearly God has such a great compassion for lost people. He left us. But he didn't leave us behind. He said he'd be with us to the end of the age. So we're to get moving. So if at the end of this sermon, maybe I left some things on the table that you're like, eh, I disagree. And you're gonna write me an email this week and you're always welcome to. And I finally started, you know, I didn't forward them to Curtis. I used to do that. I've been here long enough. I can read them for myself. And I love the interaction. Some of you ask great questions after a sermon because I know I'm unclear, especially in these kind of waters. So, so write me that email this week and I'll try to do my best to clear up what I muddied. But I, I'm gonna add a PS. Since Sunday, have you shared the gospel with anybody? And it won't be a gotcha. It'll be a, a pastor who wants to live that out in his own life. That something like this should motivate me to tell people the good news. Else, I missed the point. He sees my heart and he sees my need and he sees my future, but my future needs to be wrapped up in something bigger than myself. It needs to be wrapped up in the gospel mission as it does all of ours. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for these saints. And we just look around this room and we are blown away by your goodness to us, your compassion to us, your love for us in Christ. It's far more, as we often say, far more than we deserve. And, and the fact of the matter is that Nothing we do merits any more love that you've already given for us in your son than you have for us in him and that you pour out in our hearts through the spirit. So we are so loved by you. And so it should amaze us and then inspire us to want other people to know of a loving father in heaven who would send his son to die. And so we need boldness and we need courage and we need inspiration and we know your word does that and we know your spirit does that. And so Christ, interceding on our behalf right now, help us, we ask, because you alone are worthy of all praise and honor and glory forever. We look to you and we praise you and we love you because you first loved us. It's in your name we pray, amen.